passage from Matthew 14, there's three things that we're going to talk about from it. The first is that tragedy pushes us to truth. Tragedy pushes us to truth. Second, truth pushes us to grief. And grief pushes us to Jesus. Let me read the passage. I'll pray. This is from Matthew 14, 1 through 14. This is about John the Baptist. He was the person that God sent uh, to prepare the way for the long-awaited superhero, the rescuer of the world, the defeater of evil. This is also the cousin and very close friend of Jesus. When Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about Jesus, he said to his advisors, he's having a flashback, this must be John the Baptist, who I had murdered, raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Now the flashback. For Herod had arrested and imprisoned John the Baptist as a favor to his wife Herodias, the wife of his brother-in-law, former wife of Herod's brother Philip. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry your sister-in-law. Herod wanted to kill John, but Herod was afraid of a riot because all the people believed John was a prophet. But at a birthday party for Herod, Herodias' daughter performed a dance that greatly pleased him. So he promises with a vow to give her anything she wants. And at her mother's urging, the girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a tray. The king regretted what he had said, the bet that he had made. But because of the vow that he had made and because his friends were watching, he issued the necessary orders. So John was beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a tray and it was given to the girl who took it to her mother. Later, John's disciples came for his body and they buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. As soon as Jesus heard the news, He left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But the crowds heard where he was headed and followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Lord Jesus, as we have asked you, come in power, come in comfort. We pray in your name, amen. There's a date that probably doesn't ring a bell in your mind, but it's significant. It's September 16th, 2001. It's a significant date because September 16th, 2001 was the first Sunday after 9-11 happened. The first month after 9-11 happened, there was this haze of smoke and a stench in the air over all of Manhattan. People were still awaiting news about their family members. But September 16th was the first Sunday, and it was for the first time in a couple of decades, the time when um, churches all over New York were filled to the brim. Redeemer Presbyterian Church, just like this, it's in the Upper West Side of Manhattan by Central Park, and it was one of those churches that doubled in size that First Sunday morning after 9-11, Tim Keller's the pastor. We talk about him a lot. His church is connected to this church, connected to RUF. 
He said that the morning of September 16th, their church went from 2,800 people to 5,400. He said the leadership of the church realized too late there was a line of people wrapped all the way around an entire New York City block trying to get into the service. And so they decided on the spot, we're going to keep doing services until everybody has been able to come and worship. And in 23 years since, the crowds never left. The church only grew. A study from 2010 found that 40%, that's almost half of the gospel preaching churches in New York City, were planted in the 10 years immediately following 9-11. Almost half of the churches in New York City were birthed in the years following 9-11. And then here in Athens in the past seven days, whether it's a prayer vigil or a worship night on millage or a worship night in the sorority chapter hall or a prayer service or a vigil at Tate, thousands of y'all have crowded around to go to those places. And the question is why? Why does tragedy do that to us? Why does it make us long for more? To put it more broadly, why does Christianity seem to thrive in war-torn countries more than countries at peace, in poor places rather than rich places, in the aftermath of 9-11 rather than the year 2000? Why? Why? What does tragedy do to us? Why does it affect us the way that it does? Why does it make us long for more? I was talking to uh, one of you right after the vigil at Tate on Monday, I guess thousands of people, at least many, many hundreds, and you were telling me how weird it felt to you when the vigil ended with all of those people just standing around, not really knowing where to go or what to do. And I wrote it down, this is what you told me. You said, I could feel how hungry that crowd was for something more. Why the hunger for God in the aftermath of tragedy? Some people would say because religion is a, is a really great crutch, an emotional crutch when pain comes. But then why, for example, in New York City, 23 years later, after the pain has long gone, are these people still walking with Jesus? Why did it set off a church planning movement that continues today? I think a better explanation is that tragedy takes us closer to the truth. How does it do that? By knocking us out of illusions that we used to live under. Tragedy knocks us or takes us closer to the truth because it knocks us out of illusions that we had lived under prior. So for example, in 2001, Wall Street bankers were finally knocked out of the illusion that wealth can insulate you from pain and chaos. And that might have been the reason why they went in droves to Upper Manhattan on September 16th and for the first time sat and listened to the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in a church. The illusion was over. They'd been knocked out of it. So how is the dark week that we've been in, however you're experiencing it, however close or far you're experiencing it, how has it taken you closer to the truth? In other words, what reality checks has the past seven days brought into your life? 
I wrote down a lot of what y'all have been telling me over the week too. Some of you answered that question and you said, it's burst my bubble of invincibility. Tragedy has knocked you out of the illusion that we're completely in control of our lives or our stories and it's brought you to a more humble awareness that we don't have that much control over our own lives or our own stories. Some of you said it broke your sense of immortality as a healthy 20-year-old. It broke an illusion and it's taken you closer to truth that life is a gift and our days are numbered. Some of us, uh, it's showing us that our tiny gods that we've been talking about all spring just won't cut it. Uh, let me just give you one example. Two weeks ago, downtown or drunkenness might have had a hold on your heart as a plausible solution to loneliness, to not having friends, to not having a purpose in life. But you, you, you think about like a drunken bar crawl now and you see the absurdity of that being a solution to this. You see through it now. It's not the illusion that it once was. For some of us, it shows us that a JV Jesus that we've been talking about all spring, that that, he, that, that Jesus won't do, a tiny little sentimental Jesus, a platitude Jesus, isn't enough for a week like this, and it isn't enough for the rest of our lives when this will, will keep happening. It's broken an illusion, and it's brought you closer to the truth that we need the industrial strength Jesus that's actually revealed in the Bible, the true one who can actually defeat death and conquer evil. It's challenging Tragedy is challenging the, the super popular secular assumption that we live in a good, carefree world and if you exercise enough and earn enough money and have a good enough self-care regimen, you can avoid pain and have a carefree life. And it's broken that illusion. And in doing so, it has taken us closer to truth. Closer to reality in the past week, not further away from it. John the Baptist and his friends went through all these paradigm shifts as well. It's not as much in the lines as between the lines and from the context that leads up to this. Soon before this encounter that's on your bulletin, there's another uh, story told in Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 11, three chapters before this, where John, a deep-souled friend of Jesus, a cousin, the, the, the one who was preparing the way for Jesus to come, he was arrested and imprisoned by Herod's authorities. And so he's confused. He sends a messenger to Jesus to ask this question. If you're really the Messiah, why is this awful thing happening to me? Are you the one that God has promised or should I, should I be looking for another? In other words, why is, it, why is this terrible thing happening to me if you're God? Or to say, I thought you being in control, I thought you being God looked like evil losing, not like good people being in prison and eventually murdered. Right? So Jesus tells the messenger, go back and tell John what you have heard and seen. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The dead are raised to life. And good news is being preached to the poor. And John would have recognized, that's a direct quote from the Old Testament. John would have recognized that and he would have said, but 
that prophet that you're quoting never said anything about God's people being arrested and unjustly murdered. So John had to have been confused. I'm glad that the deaf are hearing. I'm glad that the blind are seeing. I'm glad that sick people are being healed. I'm glad that the dead are being raised. But again, why is this happening to me? If you're the God I thought I knew. So John is confused because beautiful things are happening in his life right alongside and happening in the world right alongside terrible things. And that's confusing. Beautiful things happening in the world in your life right alongside terrible things. And it brings these deep personal questions. Is God going to show up? Is he going to rescue me from danger? Is he going to rescue her from danger or him from danger? So one night soon after that encounter between Jesus and the messenger that John sent of like, why is this happening? Why am I in jail? Why am I in danger? Why, are, why haven't you busted me out of prison yet? John's woken up in the middle of the night in his cell and it's by a face he doesn't recognize. It's not one of the jailers. It's one of the executioners that Herod has sent. And he binds John up and he beheads John. And it is absolutely senseless. It's the result of a drunken bet by a king who's so insecure he can't lose face in front of his drunk friends. And so even though he knows he shouldn't do it, he sends orders for John to be killed. And John's friends are left terrified. They are known as his disciples, his followers. So they're terrified. They're hiding. They're confused. They're certainly asking God questions now. This, this wasn't in the brochure of God's reign coming to earth, of, of Jesus being king of kings and lord of lords in a world where this kind of stuff happens. How, does that, how do those numbers add up together? And all of this was taking them to, towards this theological earthquake. You might feel that. You might have felt it was some past tragedy that took you to a theological earthquake where you were asking these questions in a deeper way. But all of, all of this awareness, it complicates our understanding of the truth. It even complicates our understanding of God himself, of the gospel of Christianity. How do these weird things all fit together? This pushes us to our second point. If you are paying attention, if you're letting tragedy do what it's supposed to do, what it naturally does. If, you are, if you're not in a tug of war with tragedy, if you're allowing tragedy to take you closer to truth, if you're allowing it to open up your eyes to some of the illusions that you and I live under, where it will take you is grief. And that's one of the reasons sometimes we're in a tug of war with tragedy. There's healthy moving on and moving forward in the aftermath of tragedy, and there's premature moving on where you never deal with the wound, you just slap some gauze on it and go on and that wound comes calling and it won't be ignored. But this truth, if you're paying attention to it, if you're allowing God, even in this tragedy, to bring you closer to reality and break you out of those illusions, it'll take you to a place of grief and grief can be low-key background. It can be front burner and debilitating. And sometimes it can turn on a dime and not warn you when it's going to change. Grief isn't just an emotion we feel. It's that. 
but it's a process that we undertake. Which is to say, grief is not just an adjective, it's a verb. We grieve, just like we run, we talk, we work, we grieve. And to grieve in a healthy way, to treat a wound as we move forward involves two things. Holding on to two things or having your eyes focused on two things at the same time. So grieving in a healthy way involves holding on to two things. In one hand, it is holding tight to the beautiful world that God made, the goodness in life. And with the other hand, holding on or looking at or paying attention to the devastating ways that evil has darkened this good world. Tragedy takes us to a twofold truth that we live in a beautiful world that's been ter- terribly broken. And healthy grieving involves holding on to the beauty, the beautiful things, and the terrible things. Um, there was a friend of mine uh, back in New Mexico who, you know how. Um, you, you might have seen this with friends of yours on Instagram, but uh, when a baby is born, sometimes they'll do like a birth announcement, or like a picture of the baby in the hospital, announcing Elijah Montgomery Coppage, eight pounds or whatever he was, so and so many ounces. And people will all put down, oh, so cute, so beautiful, congratulations. Well, my friend Justin, um, for all four of my kids, his comment was the same. And it was a quote from Frederick Buechner, And that quote that he put on uh, Anna's Instagram post under every single child's birth is, this is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Is that your view of the world? This is what God has told us the world is like. Is that your view of the world? That's the truth. What happens if you let go of one of those two things, if you pay attention and see and have a category for the goodness of the world but not the terrible things or the evil of the world, or what if you only have an eye for the bad and the evil but not the good? What happens when we let go of one of those things? Healing grief becomes harmful grief. Harmful grief leads to hopelessness, it leads to unbelief. And it comes from not hearing very important things that God has told us for our good. So harmful grief can lead to hopelessness. So like if you hold on to, you might find yourself like a pessimistic person or maybe a cynical person. You've suffered a lot. You don't expect much of the world, of life, of relationships. You have a tight hold on the terrible brokenness of the world, but you've lost sight of the goodness of the world, the beauty of the world. And that becomes harmful grief, which leads to a fatalistic attitude, bitterness, cynicism, hopelessness, faithlessness. That's harmful to you. It'll shrivel your heart up. But the opposite is is just as bad, harmful grief can lead to unbelief. So like if you hold on to um, the beauty of God's world, the goodness of it, all that there is to celebrate and enjoy and savor, 
but you don't have a category for or you don't pay attention to or you deny what God has told us about the devastation that evil and sin has brought into this world, then every single time in your life or in the world when darkness intrudes, you'll, you'll become undone. And you'll probably find your heart pretty quickly sliding to what could even be satanic accusations against God. Why are you messing up this bad? How could you, how could you be good and allow this? Are you even there? Where are you? I could never believe in a God who would allow this to happen. That grows in a heart that has closed its eyes or lost its grip on the very things that your father has told you for your good. Things that we have to hold on to to grieve in a way that leads to healing and not to harm. John's closest friends, John the Baptist's closest friends had firsthand accounts. They had seen firsthand the best of God's world, the beautiful things. They had seen people in mass repenting and turning from selfishness, turning from their own darkness and embracing God again. They were seeing revival. That's what was happening as John the Baptist went around preaching, preparing the way for Jesus. Revival was happening for the first time with these stony-hearted, cold-hearted people. They were seeing people come out in mass to be baptized, to profess faith. John was a man that gave them something beautiful to live for, something to believe in. He restored their confidence that God actually did hear our cries. God did show up. He is coming. And because they had such a firm grip on the beautiful things in the world, it made the death and the news of the death of their father figure, John, their friend, John, all the more terrible and devastating to them. It was an earthquake, like I said. And if earlier I told you that John the Baptist himself was confused about Jesus and how he was working in the world, how he was bringing his reign in the world, which the Bible says is in full effect right now. If John himself was confused about why bad things were happening to seemingly good people, you better believe the disciples, his disciples who were now agonizing in the, in the aftermath of his death, you better believe they were confused and asking questions. How are you in control, God? And something like this happened to your messenger. Where were you in that dark prison cell that night when he needed your help? when he certainly was praying to you. Why didn't you send him help? Verse 12, sometimes, uh, sometime later, it says, after John died, his disciples um, look darkness in the face. And they do a very courageous thing. And they go and they find his body and they take it and they grieve and they bury him, which is just barely a sentence in the passage, but is a long, involved process of staring at their loss right in the face, of seeing their world as they knew it, their life as they knew it, their future as they knew it, seem to be buried in the same grave John got buried in, as they see their illusions of life, their even, even their illusions about God and how he works in this world buried as well. And I wanna ask you, do you feel like this week you've had to bury illusions that you've held about your life? Some of you told me, yes, my sense of safety, invincibility, immortality, control 
Have you had to bury or are you burying now some illusions that you had about God, maybe simplistic, quick answers, platitudes of how he works, of what it means for him to be present? Have you felt like you've had to bury that and grieve that? Have you had to bury and grieve the loss of a lifestyle of getting to go wherever you want, whenever you want, run wherever you want, whenever you want? You feel like you've had to bury things this week? Even as you do and as you have had to and as we will continue to in our futures, don't grow cynical and allow your heart to grow cold to the beauty of God's good world. And don't grow stoic and deny that evil has made this a hurtful place to live. But hold on to both. And let godly grief be for you like a protest to the world. I remember the way the world was meant to be. And we're not giving up. There is no plan B. There's no turning around. Let your grief be a a stubborn, fierce protest to the watching world. We're not leaving. And God's not leaving until all things are made new. But also let your grief be human and broken and tender and soft because the things that you've had to bury and the things that you've had to grieve were real and were precious and were good. And I know by now, 25 minutes in, some of you have long ago been thinking of a death in your family, the death of your parents' marriage, the death of a dream that you had, and that's okay. That's your connection point to what we're talking about. So we hold on to these two things and we hold on to healthy grief. We see how tragedy takes us out of illusions and toward the truth. We see how truth takes us towards grief, but don't stop with grieving. This doesn't stop with grieving. This doesn't stop with, here's two things you gotta do, guys. Let's pray and let's go home. John's disciples do something else in verse 12. Can you spot what it is? I love this. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. These weren't Jesus' disciples. They weren't Jesus' friends. They didn't walk around town to town with Jesus. They were John's disciples, John's friends, John's groupies. So they go to Jesus, who they did not spend their days with, and they unload and they tell him all their troubles They've grieved over John, they've grieved together, and now they've gone to Jesus and they're dumping their grief on Jesus. And I wanna say to you, please go to Jesus and tell him your troubles. And list them out one by one. Regardless of what the triggering tragedy is. They went and told Jesus their troubles, and I imagine the reason why is they had a lot of questions about this Jesus, just like John did. Are you really the guy? Why is this happening if you are? But they still probably had the thought, I think he can help. I don't know how. That's the way little kids go to mom and dad in trouble, like when they're in moments of trouble. My kids, when they run to me just wailing and weeping, they don't know how dad can help, All they know or are persuaded of is that dad will help. And as their dad, I love it when they climb up on me, and I know Anna does too, and 
they begin to itemize, as little kids are, are beautiful at doing, they begin to itemize every single piece of the trouble that they've experienced. Through the tears, that wrinkled lips as they're trying to get the words out and they're still crying and, and they say, he, he broke the Lego set that I've, I've worked on all day long and then he made a mean face at me and it hurt my feelings. And then he took my blankie and he ran away to my room. And we just hold him and we listen and inevitably their tears get all over us. It's a little bit different with Jesus when you tell him your troubles though because of how Hadley prayed earlier of the song that Caroline led us in earlier, the son of suffering. Your tears don't just splatter on Jesus' face as you run to him and tell him your troubles and yes, that involves verbal prayer, crying out. It involves that but your tears actually trigger tears in Jesus. The wetness on his face is not just your tears that fell onto his face but his tears. That's how compassionate he is. So many moments in the Gospels, Jesus rolls up on a new village or a new town and he saw the people and he pitied them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He weeps with those who weeps. He's compassionate and tender to the brokenhearted. He draws near to us in our lowest moments and he enters into that suffering. So Jesus hears the news, the troubles, and he carries the grief of John's disciples. And when they're done, verse 13 says, as soon as he heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. And why did he leave to go be alone? Several reasons, I think. One was the reason several of you got in your car Thursday night and got the heck out of Athens. He's afraid. We know that from various other places in the gospel. Jesus, Herod, Uh, This Herod who murdered John the Baptist, uh, his dad is the one who genocided all the little Jewish boys trying to kill Jesus. This family is out for blood and Jesus knows it's his blood that they want. And Jesus knows his rendezvous with Herod is coming, his rendezvous with death is coming, but it's not time. And so Jesus packs his bags and he gets out of town. Do you know that you pray to a God You tell your troubles to a Jesus who knows what it's like to feel fear. Who on more than one occasion in his life packed his bags as it were in the middle of the night and got out of town from the time he was two years old to the time he was a grown man. His life was bookended as a man on the run from trouble. And you pray to that God. That's the only God who exists. He also left because he's grieving. John is his dear friend. John is his cousin. They've been, you know, like attached at the hip since before birth. So he's grieving. His heart is devastated. He's felt the nausea of grief, the sinking feeling of darkness. And I want to ask you, do you know that you pray to a savior, you pray to a God, and that the only God who exists is a God who's looked into the dark abyss himself and felt the mental agony that Jesus felt in a tiny way on this night and in a much deeper way in the weeks that would come after this. Do you know you pray to that God? So Jesus tries to get away, but the crowd follows him. Jesus is is in his moment of grieving, in his dark moment, and here come the hordes who have chased him and followed him, who are looking for hope. 
Verse 14, Jesus saw the huge crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Do you know that the only God who is, that the living God, that the God revealed in the Bible, the God of Christianity is one who lets you interrupt him and when he sees you, his heart swells with compassion for you and your needs. Ultimately, Jesus flees because he knows what happened to John is gonna happen to me in an infinitely worse way. John 10, verse 27, written by the apostle John, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. His hour has come, his moment is there. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be thrown in prison. He's about to be unjustly murdered in a senseless act of evil. And he says this, now is my soul troubled, deeply troubled, I'm agonizing. And should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But it is for this very reason that I came. In other words, Jesus knows from his earliest conscious moments, I'm a man who was born to die. I came to live that I might die. I want to name a question that you might have been asking or heard your roommates or hallmates or somebody ask this week, or you will soon with some other tragedy. It's understandable to be wondering it on a week like this, but it's the question, why would God stand there and watch such senseless evil happen? Whether it's in Brumby or the intramural fields, or every night at the hospital, or every other house in Athens every other night that we don't even hear about. Why would God stand there and watch such senseless evil happen? How could he be good and allow that? There's a better question than that though. There's a better tree to bark up with your curiosity. And this question will soften and enlighten your heart, not harden and darken it. And this question is, Why would God stand there and watch an unjust evil happen to his beloved son on the cross as he's crucified unjustly? He must be good to allow that. John's disciples might have been wondering that day what some of us are wondering, Jesus, why didn't you do something? And Jesus, not as a slam dunk, not as a gotcha, but in a gentle, humble way, points with scarred hands to the cross and he says, I have. I have. My life was cut short that your life might endure forever, indestructibly. He said, I did not come to put out every fire that gets ignited, I came to eliminate the fuel of the fire even as some of the fires continue to rage. Tim Keller, that same pastor I told you about earlier, said, we do not know the reason that God allows evil and suffering to continue, but we know what the reason isn't. We know that the reason, what the reason can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us, and it can't be that he doesn't care because he got involved with his son. And he says, Christianity alone tells us that God lost his son in an unjust attack. So in this life, you and I grieve, just as God said we would. 
Because though heaven is breaking in, it is breaking into a still present darkness. And though light has come, light has come into the darkness. But I want to encourage you with this as we close. A call to action and the story that shows it. God is not done yet. You can't pick up the remote and turn off the movie halfway through and rage against him for why there was a tragic scene, even as it is tragic, even as it is painful. Because he has told us the story isn't over yet. And it won't be until the ripple effects of his son's death and resurrection touch every single corner of the good world that he made that sin is ruined and that he is remaking. The Jesus Storybook Bible is where we end. It's the Bible my little kids have. Have you ever seen it? Beautiful little book. You should read it too. At the very end of the book, on the very last page, this is how it ends, is it's finishing telling the story of the Bible. This is the end of the movie that we can't fast forward to get to, but Sally Lloyd-Jones writes, one day, John, the author of Revelation, knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true and perfect home once again. And he knew that in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great It would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end. Because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one's not over yet. So instead he wrote, Come quickly, Jesus which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. So friends, whether the tragedy that you most feel as you hear this tonight is what's happened in the past week or what happened six years ago or the tragedies you fear six years from now, even with tears in your eyes or a broken heart, keep watching your God. He's not done yet. Let's pray. Father, we will need the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to keep watching through tears, through pain, through groaning, through suffering, through fear. Jesus, help us to keep watching you. Help us to see that you have done something have heard our cries, you have answered, and strengthen our faith as you open our eyes.